It is a wonderful blessing once again to be with you this evening. If you are visiting this congregation tonight, we welcome you. And I know uh, the folks here invite you back at any opportunity that you have to come and to worship and assemble with the saints here. Uh, but we're glad to see you tonight as we continue this series of studies on the life of Jesus Christ and getting to know the real Jesus and the real story of Jesus. Uh, so far this week, for those of you that may have not been here on Wednesday or Thursday, we have talked about it couple of different aspects of who Jesus was. On Wednesday night, we talked about the fact that Jesus is eternal, that he did not begin his existence when he came down as a baby, but that Jesus has always been. John 1, 1 through 3 talks about the Word, was with God, was God. Verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Hebrews 1 talks about, it's through him that the worlds were created. Jesus has always been. Yesterday, we talked about the fact that Jesus is God made flesh, and we looked at the story of Jesus' birth the story of him at 12 years old, as he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, and then as he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And we left off as he had chosen his 12 disciples and was about to embark on this three-year ministry where he would go about teaching his kingdom and doing many miracles and signs before the people. And so that's the study tonight. We're going to look at the things that Jesus did and that he taught during those three years that he ministered for people. So tonight's lesson is that Jesus is Master and teacher, and he was then, and he is now. Now, as way of introduction, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, this comes at the tail end of that Sermon on the Mount. It says, It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And I want us to recognize that Jesus, as master and teacher, he taught differently than any, anybody else that they were used to hearing. The scribes whose job it was to record sacred documents, to copy sacred documents, they would read those documents, but they didn't teach the way that Jesus was teaching. Jesus was teaching as God, as one that had authority, and the people saw it. They saw the difference. So it was obvious to them that this same baby that had been worshipped and feared, this same kid that at 12 years old was astonishing the teachers in the temple, this was a man now at 30 years old who is teaching with authority, the authority that comes from God. In Matthew 4, verse 24, we see that Jesus had great power. It says, His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Jesus performed many miracles, miraculous things on this earth in order to prove that he was truly the Son of God, and therefore, so that people would listen to the message that he's teaching. And this passage wants us to notice three separate categories that are listed here of people that Jesus helped. People that were possessed with devils. People that had spiritual issues of being demon-possessed. People that were lunatic. That literally means moonstruck or crazy in the mind. So people with mental issues that weren't right in the mind. And then those that had the palsy, and that's representative of the physical maladies. Those that were disabled, those that were uh, paralytics, those that couldn't move or had other physical problems. And so he came to heal physically, spiritually, mentally, and he showed that power and that ability to do that. Now, some of the people that were seeing some of these things that Jesus began to do, some of these Jewish leaders, they accused him of using the power of Satan to accomplish these feats. In fact, in Luke 11, 14 and 15, it says, As he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake. And the people wondered, but some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Now, Beelzebub is simply another name for Satan. 
And so they're accusing Jesus of casting this spirit out through the power of Satan. And this is where Jesus responds and he says, A kingdom against itself cannot stand. It doesn't make sense for me to be using Satan's power to cast out Satan. That makes no sense. And then he follows it up with this statement in verse 20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he uses this casting out of this spirit to prove to them it's not from Satan's power, it's God's power. And if I'm using God's power to do this, then you ought to recognize and know that his kingdom's almost here. And this kingdom's about to be here, and you need to be ready. And you need to be ready to repent. And so Jesus is going to teach those things, but he's going to show these great powers as a sign to the people that he is sent truly from God. Now in John chapter 2, we see the recording of Jesus' first miraculous deed. And it's at a wedding in Cana. In verse 1, it says the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. I love this first miracle because his mom is coming to him, and this is the same Mary that carried him, who had the angel come, and said, you're carrying the king of the eternal kingdom. He's going to save his people from their sins. She's the one that kept and pondered all those things in her heart as he was 12 years old and speaking with those teachers of the law. And this is that same Mary that's going, son, you've been baptized. You've been tested by Satan. You're ready to go. They need wine. It's time. And he's going, mom, it's not time. This is not the time for me to start doing this yet. And it's almost as if she ignores him and she goes, look, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Because he's going to take care of it. And sure enough, Jesus does. I don't know if the prompting of a mother here uh, was enough to get him, get him started and agreeable that this was the perfect time. But nevertheless, he decides to do it. And so he does. He in, instructs them to take these six pitchers of water and to turn them into wine. And he essentially saves the wedding, so to speak. Everybody is very, very pleased. Verse 11 says, The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. After he pulled off this first miracle, it says his disciples believed on him. Now they had enough faith in him and trust in him that they had decided to follow him already, but now that they've seen this, it was strengthened and it was confirmed for them. And they're going to see many other wonderful miracles that Jesus performs. There's a story in Matthew chapter 9 of him healing a paralytic, uh, paralytic man. It says in verse 2, And behold, they brought unto him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? Now, I love this because it shows us a couple of things. One, it shows Jesus' first priority was not the physical condition of this man. Now, he cared about the physical condition. He's going to heal the physical condition. But his first priority was the spiritual, was the salvation of this man's soul. And so he tells this man, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And when he's accused by the scribes of blaspheming against God, he goes, look, let me, let's put this to a test. Is it easier for someone to say, your sins be forgiven you, which can't be verified by anybody, or to say, rise up and walk? Because if he doesn't rise up and walk, you know I'm a fake, right? So he turns back around in verse 6. And he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and, par- and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. 
And so while Jesus' first priority was salvation and the spiritual side of mankind, he helped physically in order to show and to prove that he had the power to do it spiritually. And so I think an application that we can take today from that is that we deal with physical problems today. We, we deal with diseases and sicknesses and, and injuries and things that are hard and painful and difficult to deal with. And it is not that God does not care about the physical side of mankind, but it is not the priority for him. What God cares about most is your eternal soul. Because at the end of this story, all of these physical bodies are going to die unless Jesus returns first. And they're going to turn to dust. What's going to be left is our eternal soul. And that's what Jesus' priority was when he was on earth. And that's still God's priority today. So I want to encourage you, if you're dealing with those physical issues today, to keep the faith and keep moving forward. Because at the end of the story, no matter what happens in this life, if you're faithful to Christ, you have a home in heaven. And that's what's truly important. So Jesus performs this miracle, and he says, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? He says, so I'll prove to you that I can forgive his sins, and I'll have him rise up and walk, and he does. And it's an amazing thing that people marvel. We see another miracle in Mark chapter 4, 36 through 41, where Jesus calms the storms. It says, and when they sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was into the ship. And there were also with him other little ships, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? There's a song that we sing that uses those lyrics right there where we sing about this particular story. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So we've got Jesus and his disciples in this ship, and there's a great storm. And as you and I would do, because it's human nature, in a perilous situation like that, they begin panicking. And they're going, we're going to die on this ship. And they go to find Jesus, and he's asleep. He's getting peaceful rest. And they're going, how in the world can you sleep during a time like this? We're going to die. We're going to perish. You're over here sleeping. And he goes, you have no faith. And he rebukes the wind and the sea. He says, peace, be still. And you know what happens? The storm stops. You ever seen anything like that? You ever seen anybody with the power to command the wind and the rain? They saw it, and they said, who in the world is this guy that even the winds and the rains obey him? He's Jesus. He's God made flesh. We see another story in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And really, it's probably likely far more than 5,000. It was 5,000 men. And so depending on how many women and children there were in the company, this could have been 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people. There's no way to know, but it was at least 5,000 that he feeds. In verse 14 of Matthew 14, it says, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And it was evening. His disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place. And the time is now past, and send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. So we've got a problem. There's thousands of people that are following Jesus, that are listening to him teach. And they're hungry, and his disciples are going, Send them away, tell them to go buy their own food. They're hungry, we're not here to feed them physically. And Jesus says, No, we're going to feed them. That's what we're going to do. And they go, Look... <laughs> We've got five loaves of bread and two fish. That ain't going very far. We're not feeding 5,000 people with that. What does Jesus do? 
says, he said to them, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained, twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside women and children. With five loaves and two fishes, Jesus fed a multitude. And you know, the human side of me just wonders how realistically this happened. As those disciples have these baskets of food, is it like they pass out one and then they just see another one appear in the basket? I mean, I just wonder how it actually logistically happened. But however it happened, there was an abundance of food that five loaves and two fishes turned into. So much so that there were 12 baskets full of food that they took up after it was done. What an amazing thing to witness that thousands of people were able to eat until they were full because of such a small amount of food. Jesus did this. He did this, I think, one, again, to show who he was, but two, because he loves people. And he had compassion on the people that were following them and wanted to make sure that they were fed and taken care of. There's a story in Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. It says, The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is the Spirit. And they cried out for fear, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now I want us to not just skip over something, and I want us to recognize that Jesus is walking on water. This is not something that you see every day. This is not something you see ever. Now, remember that we talked about last night, too. This was a different time period that they lived in. In this time period, while Jesus was preaching and teaching, Satan had more reign on the earth than he does now. Jesus conquered him, crushed him, took over the power of this world. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. But before that, Satan was the prince of the power of the air. There were devils that were possessing people. Satan had more reign. So an evil spirit that they believed that they saw was more likely to actually be the case back then than it would be for us. That seems like an odd thing to believe now. But they believed it was an evil spirit on the water because what man could do that? And yet, sure enough, it was Jesus. Enough so that Peter says, hey, I've got an idea. Prove to me that it's you and let me walk out on the water too. He said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were on the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, this is a different ending than when he calmed to the storms and they said, Who in the world is this guy? In this case, they go, We know who you are. You're the Son of God. Because there's no one else that could do that, what you just did. Not only to walk on water himself, but to allow Peter, a mere human, to step out onto that water and begin to walk toward him. Peter, unfortunately, though, he begins well, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's full of faith, and he's doing it. And you can just imagine Peter as this normal man, just like you and I, a normal human being. First of all, it takes a lot of faith to, to take that first step, right? Because if this isn't Jesus, if this isn't a, a trickster evil spirit, I mean, you're about to sink. But he takes that step, and he begins walking. And what an amazing feeling. But then he sees the waves and the wind, and he gets worried, and he begins to sink. And Jesus says, you have too little faith. Why do you doubt? And I ask that question sometimes too as I go through these stories and we go in succession like we're doing tonight. We look at all these stories. 
all of these things that Peter has seen, all of the things that the disciples have been exposed to, and still there are periods of doubt. And it makes me go, you know, on the one hand I go, I would think it would be easy to be full of faith and to know that this is going to happen because of all the things you've seen, but then I go, you know, I may do the exact same thing because it's contrary to human nature. It's against what we can naturally do. Jesus was doing something supernatural because he's God. He's God made flesh. And so it took a lot of these instances for their faith to continue to develop. And they will continue to struggle as human beings through the rest of their lives, of course, as we know. But what an amazing story of Jesus walking on the water and allowing Peter to do so as well. It's another miracle in John chapter 11. Verses 32 through 37, it says, Then when Mary was come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. You see, Mary and Martha were two special people to Jesus, and they had a brother who was also special to him. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick. And he tarried where he was and went somewhere else and didn't immediately go to where Lazarus was. And so when he finally arrives at the place, Martha says, or Mary says, if you had been here, you could have kept him from dying. She knew that. She had the faith to recognize that. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And he said to the, or then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. Now, there's something I want to notice here, and that is that we know the rest of this story and what's about to take place. Jesus knew the rest of this story and what was about to take place, but still he was troubled in spirit. He groaned inwardly and he wept outwardly for his friend because he cared, because it saddened him to know that his family was sad and that his friends were sad. There's a humanity to Jesus that we see here in this story that I don't want to pass over. He was 100% God but he was 100% man. And he had friendships and relationships with people that meant a lot to him. So much so that he wept in grief over the loss of his friend. And I think we can remember in times of grief and sadness when we lose loved ones that it is not because we are faithful, because we know the end of the story is heaven, because we know we'll get to see them again one day, well then we can't be sad. Well then we can't grieve and that's not true. Because even Jesus, knowing what he was about to do, grieved. And there is a grief that comes from a loss of relationship that's okay to have that grief and to process it. And then we keep moving forward. Because we do know the end of the story is something wonderful. And the end of this story is as well. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus saith unto her, said, not, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto, him, unto them, Loose him and let him go. You know, in this time period, there were sorcerers 
people who would use pharmaceuticals and other means to trick people into believing certain things that weren't true. They could uh, pretend, so to speak, to have miraculous powers or, or future uh, ability to tell the future and things like that, and they would try to deceive and trick people. So there's some level, even in Jesus' miracles, that you've got to think some people have doubt and believe that he's faking this. But here's an instance where even if you doubted after seeing him walk on water, even if you doubted after seeing 5,000 people fed with five loaves and two fishes, this is a guy that's dead, and he's verifiably dead, and has been dead for four days. This is not a trick. This is not a deception. This is not something that anyone else but God could do. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And a man that was dead for four days, still wrapped in his grave clothes, came out of that tomb and was alive again. And we assume that we don't have much information beyond that, that Lazarus would have lived the rest of whatever would have been his human life and died again at some point. But Jesus has just shown the ability to have power over death itself. Which of all the things that human beings fear, death is typically the top of the list. And Jesus has proven as God he has the power over even that. And that should be a comfort to those that follow him. Because if Jesus has power over the grave, Jesus has power over death, then he can raise us from death to life, just as he did with Lazarus. In Matthew 15, verse 30 and 31, we see the reason for these miracles, as we've mentioned tonight. It says, The great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame and blind and dumb, maimed and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. That's what Jesus wanted. He wanted people to see the miracles that he did and glorify God. He wanted to point them in the direction of God through his miraculous happenings, and it worked. John 20, verse 30 and 31 says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. We think about the, the Bible in terms of being complete, and it is complete in the sense of having everything that we need in it, but it's not complete in the sense of recording everything that Jesus said or did. There are other miracles, other signs that Jesus did that John says he did. They're not recorded. They're not written down for us. What an amazing thing that would have been to witness, but those things were reserved for the people that were there at that day to see. These have been written down, though. These miracles that we've gone over tonight and many others in the Gospels have been written down so that people like you and I throughout the ages ages, can see those things, can read those things, can experience those things in a second-hand way and recognize that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And I hope tonight that that's something that you have done, and if you've not done it yet, that you will, to recognize that Jesus is God's Son and He was God-made flesh on this earth. Now we're going to spend the next few minutes of our message tonight talking about some of the things that Jesus taught. In order to get people to listen to him, he performed these miracles to prove who he was. And all along the way, he taught them. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. So we can't cover, obviously, all the things that Jesus taught in his three years here. Uh, in his three-year ministry. We can't 
cover all the things that are written in the Gospels, but I do want to share a few specific things. Jesus taught about his coming kingdom, the new, the new kingdom that was going to be established. Now, we've talked about Daniel 2, verse 44, that prophecy about the eternal kingdom, that the God of heaven would establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed, and that would happen in the days of Rome. So here we are in the days of Rome. Here's Jesus, and Jesus begins teaching and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he begins to talk about this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, the people that are learned in the Old Testament scriptures would have immediately begun to connect to those Old Testament prophecies about that kingdom. And they're hearing this and recognizing this man is teaching that that kingdom, that eternal kingdom that's been prophesied of, he's saying it's about to be here. That word at hand literally means near. It's right at hand. So it's not a long way off. It's not a long time away. It's right here. Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus is talking to a crowd, and it says, He said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now this is an important verse, because he's talking to human beings in the crowd. And he says, There's some of you that are standing here right now today. You're still going to be alive. You're still going to be here. You're going to see the kingdom of God come. Now in my brain, this leaves two basic options, Right? One is that the kingdom came in the lifetime of the people that were standing there listening to him then. Or that there are 2,000-year-old people walking around. And I don't know about you. I know some older folks. I've seen some older folks, but not 2,000-year-old. And so the only other alternative is that Jesus was lying. And we know that's not true. He's God made flesh. And he says the kingdom of God is coming in the lifetime of the people that I am talking to now. So I want us to recognize as a piece of our theology of our belief system and recognition of Christianity is the fact that the eternal kingdom of God is not something that we're looking forward to. It's not something that's still going to come at some point in the future. It is something that is here now because Jesus said it is at hand. It's coming in the lifetime of those that are here. Jesus taught that as a part of this new kingdom, there would be a new law, a new covenant that was established with mankind. In Matthew 5, 17, it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets, I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now up to this point, it had been 1,500 years of Jewish history that they had been under the law of Moses. Under the Old Testament law, that covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And they've been living under this law. And Jesus comes and he starts preaching this kingdom that's coming and this new law, this new covenant that's going to be established. And he says, I didn't come to destroy the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but I came to fulfill it and to replace it with something new and something different. In Hebrews 8, verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This is that new covenant. Not the old covenant of Moses that was written on those stone tablets, those ten laws and the 613 total laws. This was a new covenant that would be written in the hearts of mankind. In verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. One thing that is important to note here is that the writer of Hebrews, whether that was Paul or someone else, is quoting Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah out of chapter 31, about verse 33 or so, and there on. And so the writer of Hebrews, after the death of Christ, is not saying the old covenant is ready to vanish away. He's saying Jeremiah said the old covenant is ready to vanish away. And at the point in which he was writing this, 
it had been taken away and replaced with that new covenant that Jesus laid down. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And this is one thing that's very, very important for us to understand. That that old law governed the Jewish people for 1,500 years or so. And he says it was a schoolmaster. It was a teacher to bring us up to a certain point, and that point was Christ. And when Christ came, and people could be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, there was no need for that teacher, that schoolmaster anymore. The old law, that old covenant of Moses, it had been put away. And this new covenant, this new law was now available through Jesus Christ to everyone. As a part of that new law, Jesus taught a new moral standard. He taught a new way to think about decisions and actions that we take in our life. In Matthew 15, 7 and 8, he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, in some ways, it's not new, because God has always wanted the heart of mankind. But what the old covenant did was it turned people into... We have to make sure we dot our I's and cross our T's and do the things that we're supposed to do. And so we honor God with our lips, but the heart wasn't there. And Jesus said, what God wants is your heart. This new law, this new moral standard that Jesus is teaching is this concept. It's really an old one, but he's bringing it back and going, what God wants is your heart. He wants you to be fully dedicated to him. And so he's going to use some examples. I'm going to take a couple of them out of the Sermon on the Mount about things that they understood from the old law or from their culture at that time and then the replacement that Jesus is giving to them. One of those is Matthew 5, 38 and 39. He says, You've heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now part of the old law was this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tooth for a tooth concept. Deuteronomy and Leviticus both talk about this concept. If you have stolen a cow from me, the payment for that is I get to take one of your cows. It's equal. It's justice, right? And what Jesus is saying is that we're not going to think about things that way anymore, but instead, if someone smites you on one cheek, you turn around and you let him smite you on the other. That's different. That's not human nature. We want justice. We want fairness. Someone smites, smites me on my cheek, I want to smite them on their cheek. That's what we want. Jesus says that's not the kind of people that we're going to be. We're going to be the kind of people that turn aside and let them do it to us again. That shows a heart of forgiveness. This moral standard that Jesus is reminding everybody of and placing into his new covenant, his new kingdom, is that we're going to be a forgiving people. Not easy to anger, not easy to quarreling, but easy to love and to have compassion and to forgive. Another example that we see is Matthew 5, 43 and 44. It says, You've heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say also unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now that thou shalt love thy neighbor is found in the Old Testament. That thou shalt hate thy enemy. I haven't found that. So that was added apparently by the Jews. They had extrapolated that out and added that themselves uh, it, it, to my level of knowledge, that's not in the Old Testament. God never told them to hate their enemy. But that's apparently what they believe, that if we've got to love our neighbor, well, that allows us to hate our enemy. And Jesus says, no, I want you to love your enemy. So even those people that are rude to you, 
that are disrespectful to you, that physically harm you, that mentally or emotionally abuse you, whatever the case may be, Jesus says we're going to be the kind of people that pray for them, that love them, and care about them. And that's hard. That's a hard way to live. And so as Jesus is going around and he's doing these miracles and he's proving his Godship that he's God-made flesh, he's teaching things that are hard for these people to receive and to understand. But he's giving them the expectations of God and asking them to follow those things. And that shows a heart of love. And one other in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. This goes back to that honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me concept. And Jesus saying that's not the kind of people that God wants. God wants people who are from the heart, dedicated servants. He says, you've heard that it's been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's part of the Ten Commandments. They're real familiar with that. You're not supposed to be committing adultery. Okay, good, great. Jesus says, I don't even want you to think about it. I don't want you to look at another person with lustful intent. Because if you're doing that in your mind, you're committing adultery with them in your mind. And so those people that have been raised with those Ten Commandments and that thou shalt and thou shalt not, they may have been patting themselves on the back that they had never physically committed adultery. But Jesus is saying, you're just as bad. You've committed the same sin if you've done it in your mind. That's hard. That's a high standard. Now I think we need to remember grace and we need to remember that we're human and we all make mistakes and we have thoughts sometimes that come in our mind that should not be there. But there's a brother at home that always, a phrase that he used to say that stuck with me over years. He said, thoughts are like birds. He said, you can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And his point was, a thought's going to pop into your your mind. You can't help that. A thousand thoughts, thousands of thoughts pop into our head every day. But he said, you can keep them from staying there, and you can stop yourself from dwelling on it and imagining what it would be like to be with that person and to commit adultery. You can stop yourself from that. And so that goes to that concept of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes about of taking every thought captive and bringing it into subjection to Christ. So anytime that we have a thought, we ought to take it and say, is this pleasing to Christ or not? And if it's not, we get rid of it and we move forward and we move ahead and we don't dwell on it, we don't think about it. If it's something that is pleasing to Christ, then we keep it and we dwell on it and we carry it out. So this, these examples that we've looked at here show us that heart of love and forgiveness and righteousness that God is looking for and that Jesus was teaching. Now, Jesus also taught in parables, and he taught many different parables, and I'm just going to mention four of them very quickly that hopefully you're familiar with. Luke 10, 25, the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're not familiar with any of these, go read them on your own sometime. But in that story, we see... This man that serves his neighbor and loves his neighbor, and we recognize Jesus teaches that everyone is our neighbor. And so we ought to be loving and kind and compassionate and serve everyone. In Luke 18, we see the story of the Pharisee and the publican. And these two men that are praying to God, and and the, the publican is humble, and he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Publican's a tax collector. Whereas that Pharisee is saying, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And he's self righteous and he's prideful. And Jesus is teaching through that parable the importance of humility and recognizing who we are before God. Jesus teaches the parable of the prodigal son. This son that had taken his inheritance and gone and he had lived a riotous life and spoiled it. 
and, and used all that he had had, all of his father's wealth, and finally he finds himself eating or wanting to eat the pig slop and comes to himself and he returns to the father and the father is there and he's waiting and his arms are open. And it's a beautiful picture of no matter what mistakes we have made in life, no matter what sins are in our past, that if we'll get up and come to ourselves and walk back to God, that he's there to welcome us home. Jesus taught the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where these two men, one who was rich and fared sumptuously every day, another who was a beggar who ate the scraps from his table, they both die. The rich man finds himself in torment. Lazarus finds himself in comfort. The rich man wants just a single drip of water to cool his tongue. He is tormented in that flame. He's unable to get it. He begs and begs that someone could be sent from the dead to tell his brothers about this place so that they don't end up here. And the response is that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the scriptures, they're not going to believe someone from the dead. And the teaching of that parable is that there are two eternal destinations that all of us have the choice. The choice here while we're alive to direct ourselves toward. One is heaven and one is hell. One is a place of wonder and comfort and one is a place of torment and destruction. And Jesus taught this to illustrate to people the importance of listening to Him and to God while they are alive here. And I want to encourage you to do the same. And finally, Jesus taught the plan of salvation. And He taught it in His own words. And the scriptures that I'm about to read for you about this plan of salvation, all of them come from Jesus Himself. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came saying, A new kingdom is about to be here. And in this new kingdom, there's a new covenant that I'm making with mankind. And if you're a follower of mine, you're going to be loving, and you're going to be forgiving, and you're going to be righteous in heart, and you're going to love your enemies and do all those things that we've talked about. But He says, Here's how it starts. You have to believe in Me. He said, That's why I'm here. That's why God sent me to this earth. was so that you could believe on me and have salvation. And we could stop there and we could say, there's the answer. Jesus has said, as long as you believe in Him as the Son of God, you're saved. But one of the mistakes sometimes people make is they find one verse. And they lean on that one verse. And they say, I know this is truth because I read it. Jesus said it and that's true. Jesus said it. This verse is true. But Jesus said a lot of things. And it's important that we pay attention to all the words of Jesus. And so I want to look at what Jesus said in Matthew the 10th chapter, verse 32 and 33. Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, It's not enough that you just believe in me. You have to be willing to go confess that belief to people. You have to be willing to stand before a crowd and say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Some people believe that it's enough to say that in their heart. And they keep it here. And they don't ever want to shout it from the rooftops. And they don't want to let their co-workers know. And they don't want to tell people that they're a Christian because they're embarrassed or they're ashamed even though they believe that they believe. But belief isn't enough. Jesus said if we're not willing to do that, if we deny Him before men, we'll be denied before the Father. And so I want to encourage you tonight to listen to the words of Jesus Christ Himself as He said a new kingdom's about to be here. And here's the way to get in. You've got to believe in Me as the Son of God and you've got to be willing to tell people about it. And then in Luke 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus said it doesn't stop here with belief or even with the ability to confess that belief before people. You can't keep living the same life that you've been living. Too many people believe that they can come to God and then they continue to go and live the same type of sinful life they were living before. And it's like wanting your cake and being able to eat it too. 
You want to be able to have eternal life, but you don't want to do the things on this earth that the giver of eternal life has asked you to do. And what sense does that make? If we want the eternal life that's promised by God, that's promised by Jesus His Son, then we have to be willing to submit to Him as Lord and Master and say, you are Master, you are Teacher, and I'm willing to learn. And this concept of repentance means to change, to turn, to stop living the old life and to start living this new life that we've talked about, this new moral standard, this new covenant relationship with God, to give your heart to God fully. That means you're not going to go in the darkness and rebel against God but you're going to give Him your heart in the light and in the darkness. And you're going to be dedicated fully to Him. But Jesus didn't stop there either. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Some people want to read the belief scriptures, the confession scriptures, the repentance scriptures, but they don't want to acknowledge the baptism scripture. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus, the giver of eternal life Himself, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, said that those who believe and are baptized will be saved. That baptism is an important part of that salvation. John prepared the way for Jesus and he baptized people. I think to get people used to that, to recognize that that was coming as the requirement for salvation and new covenant. And then when Jesus came, he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the commandments of God, and to be an example for us of what we needed to do. And then Jesus himself taught that we need to be baptized in order to be saved. What is baptism? Baptism is, at its simplest form, is simply being immersed in water and coming back up. There's nothing special about the water. There's nothing miraculous about the water. What's miraculous is what Jesus does what His blood does, what God performs on you, the work that He does. Because when you submit to baptism, you are giving yourself over to God. You are saying, I want to be a part of this new kingdom, this new covenant. I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, the blood of Jesus Christ washes over you and your sins are cleansed from you. And when you rise up out of that water, you're a new person, a new creature you have been able to restore the relationship with God that was broken when you committed sin and that sin separated you from Him. And Jesus has restored it for you. Tonight you've heard that plan of salvation from Jesus' own lips. And I want you to know that He wants you to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're here tonight and you have not been baptized into Jesus Christ, if you've not made Him your Lord and Master, your teacher, if you're not following Him today, it's time that you start. He wants to save you. But He's asking you to make the free will choice to come to Him. Our final verse tonight is John chapter 12, verses 48 through 50, where Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. And I want you to know tonight that the words that Jesus himself spoke, those are the words we're going to be judged by. And I've done my very best tonight to present to you what I believe is God's honest truth about what Jesus taught about salvation and from his own mouth and from his own lips. And so I'm begging you, I'm asking you tonight, if you're in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ, don't wait. Don't reject him. 
Don't face the judgment day having rejected the very words that could save you. Accept him and have that eternal life that's promised. If we can assist you in any way tonight, please come forward and sit on the front row as we stand and sing.